Hey guys, this week's episode is brought to you by Avalanche. Avalanche solves the biggest challenges facing Ethereum's developer and decentralized finance or DeFi community. That is velocity, security, and time to finality under three seconds on the first decentralized network resistant to 51% attacks. With complete support for the Ethereum virtual machine and all of the tools that have fueled DeFi's growth to date, including MetaMask, Web3.js, MyEtherWallet, Remix, and many more coming, Avalanche will be at parity with Ethereum for DeFi developers that want a much faster network without the scaling issues holding them back. Get started today building without limits on Avalanche by going to chat.avax.network. That is chat.avax.network. Thanks. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 87 of Hashing It Out. Uh, I'm Dean. I'm here today with Maurelian. Say what's up, Maurelian. Um, Today we have on our show Ethan Bachman of Informal Systems. Hey, Ethan. I'm just going to let you quickly introduce yourself. Cool. Uh, I'm Ethan, uh, most notably co-founder of the Tendermint and Cosmos Project. uh, sort of various roles over the year, but most over the years, but most recently, CEO of a new company, uh, Informal Systems, uh, that's focused on uh, formal verification work in the blockchain space, specifically on distributed systems, consensus protocols, and so on, uh, and implementations in Rust. So these days, we're focusing on uh, the Cosmos protocols, implementing a big chunk of the Cosmos stack in Rust, uh, and doing a lot of formal verification work in TLA+. Okay, so the starter question we always ask everyone when they're on the show is, what brought you into crypto? How did you get started? Well, uh, I've answered this question on many podcasts before, so I guess it should be consistent, but maybe at some point I'll change up the answer. Um, essentially, uh, so my background was in, in uh, biophysics, uh, and I was sort of studying the origin of life and specifically how life emerged in a universe that's allegedly always running down, where living systems are these you know, amazing systems that are kind of emergent and, and running up, so to speak. Um, and uh, back in around uh, 2013, I sort of discovered Bitcoin and first kind of ignored it because I didn't understand it. And then after spending a little bit more time with it and hearing about it more, um, it kind of, uh, I kind of realized that it seemed like this was the origin of life in the digital medium. And this was like the first time that you know, we've had all these, uh, you know, communication protocols over the internet, but this was the first time we really had like a, uh, a, a real like emergent coordination protocol uh, built on top of these communication protocols that allowed something to kind of exist that wasn't really possible before that sort of had a life of its own. Uh, and that this could be the foundation for like an explosion of, you know, so-called digital living systems. Um, and I got really hooked by that and, and obsessed with sort of applying biophysical uh, intuitions and intuitions about organisms and, and the nature of life and sustainability and so on 
uh, into this domain. Um, and I've just been sort of enraptured with that ever since. And, and I, I guess a, a big part of it also was at the time, um, I had sort of been learning about the financial system and, and, you know, for the first time paying attention to what, you know, the economic structures in the world were like and how broken they were. Um, and I was sort of studying, you know, machine learning and stuff like that at the time as well. Uh, you know, and applying machine learning to like biology and whatever. Um, and I sort of realized that, uh, you know, there's enough people working on AI, it's being accelerated uh, in the current economic conditions. Uh, it's not going to be a good thing to have, uh, you know, more intelligent AI. It's just going to be used for exploitation and oppression. And I think that's sort of being borne out. Uh, and that, you know, what we really need is to uh, is to fix the the global economic structure and to have something more bottom up and more sustainable and that, you know, better resembles um, you know, the sustainability we have in biological systems. And it seemed like the ideals and technology inherent in Bitcoin were uh, sort of the illuminating light on, on a potential path for how to do that. And so that's, I sort of went all in on leveraging that kind of technology, consensus systems, cryptography, game theory, et cetera, um, to, you know, solve these issues in, uh, in the global financial system, essentially, and uh, been, been here ever since. Okay, awesome. So I really like the work of informal systems. I hang out with Sean quite a bit. Sure. I talk to him a lot. It's always an interesting conversation. And whenever I look at the work you guys are doing, I kind of feel like, or I ask myself why not everyone in this space is like doing this approach that you guys are doing because it just seems like the right thing to do. What what brought you into this approach, this method of um building these systems so uh you know so, so we built tendermint in go and we didn't do it like this um, and you know the, the problem is with a lot of with a lot of distributed systems is there's like black magic involved like you hear stories of like of like paxos and how like paxos systems were implemented and like you have like an incredibly small number of people who are capable of like actually making changes to the system and who are depended on for uh, for maintaining the system. And, you know, and, and so we sort of, you know, we're in a similar world with Tendermint from all our experience of actually building that thing up. And the way bugs would emerge um, was really, uh, you know, concerning that like you, you have this like incredibly complex thing and there's only a few people who really understand it deeply. And, you know, it's hard to, you know, it can be hard to test and it's hard to know. Uh, it's hard to like really convince yourself that the thing is correct. Um, and then especially, uh, it, it, it's hard to maintain and to change. So if you want to make modifications, you know, it's a big integrated thing. And to try to like dive into Tendermint's consensus package, for instance, and understand what's going on in a way that you could make a change and gain confidence in it um, was really challenging. And and so, and so and it's not just about the, actually, it's not even just about the um, the code. It's also the protocols themselves, right? And so we're all... We're all building out these new consensus protocols and, you know, everyone and their grandmother at this point has a pet consensus protocol and we're all building out like protocols around them and, you know, like client protocols and like all these DeFi protocols on top. Um, and it's really hard to, you know, to gain uh, real assurances that the protocols are correct and behave the way you want them to. And then that the implementation is correct and behave the way you want them to and that the implementation, you know, really implements the protocol. And so we felt that you know, based on all, uh, all our experience, like building Tendermint and the, you know, difficulty of gaining confidence and making changes, um, that it really made sense to look at, uh, formal verification for distributed systems and to look into ways to actually, uh, build, uh, 
more confidence in both the protocols, the distributed systems protocols, and in their implementations and find ways to keep those things uh, in sync and come up with better processes for, uh, you know, building reliable distributed systems that would be more understandable by more people and, and more easy, uh, you know, easier to maintain and easier to uh, ensure the correctness of changes. Okay. So, so when you say that you write these formal specifications for your protocols, what's the process there? Because I actually had this discussion with Sean as well. And like with, with a TLA spec, for example, you have this spec, but then how are you certain that the code you're running or the implement your Rust implementation is actually a correct implementation of the TLA spec? Yeah. So that, that, that's the huge challenge, right? Um, and that's not something we've totally figured out yet. Um, so, you know, people in other, you know, formal verification is actually a big field and there's many kind of subcomponents. And, you know, um, one problem is that like there probably isn't enough crosstalk, right? And so people who, people will do things one way and then they won't do things other ways. And, you know, so there's a whole, there's a whole world of formal verification where that you actually generate the code from the spec. So you write like, you know, you write your code in cock or something and you, you get like a perfect, a perfect like proof of it. And then you actually generate executable code and you run that code and, and you never modify it as a human. And, you know, and then all you have to do is really verify your uh, the compiler there, and then you know that okay, now you have confidence that your code is correct. But um, you know, our our con we have a number of concerns with that. One is like the the um, the uh, what are they called? The proof assistants are are, are quite fragile and, and difficult to use, and require a lot of expertise. And you know, building out these like complete proofs, like like in Coq, is actually a very um, very very difficult. Um, enterprise and requires like you know tremendous expertise and uh it's difficult to maintain them if you if your protocol changes or something and uh you know there's this sense that actually just generating the code also isn't going to be sufficient because somewhere along the line you're going to want to be able to make changes or adapt it or you know integrate it with uh with with other components of code that maybe weren't generated by by cock or whatever and so uh, it's a little bit fragile to think that everything is just going to be able to be generated and so we're sort of trying to take a different approach um, where we're not really focused right now on generating code and, you know, maybe that's something we'll get into for components of the system. But what we're looking at is using, uh, the, the specifications as a, as a communication tool and as a way to build like really clear, unambiguous understanding of what the protocol should be doing and, and then trying to find touch points where we can align the specification and the implementation. So one thing we're doing now is, uh, for instance, a lot of parts of our specification are tagged. So they have like little labels that say, you know, for a definition or for an invariant that's supposed to hold or something like that. And then we have those, we persist those labels in the code as well. So wherever that part of the spec is being implemented, we also have that label, right? And that way, and so trying to build sort of hooks between the spec and the implementation, so you can sort of jump back and forth and sort of see directly, uh, you know, that this, this code implements this piece. So that's, that's one thing. And obviously, you know, that this isn't perfect. It's not good. It's not formally verified code per se, of course. Uh, but you know, we're trying, what we're trying to do is really build, um, practical techniques that are going to be accessible that anyone can adopt without making, you know, major changes to their technology or to their stack or their way of doing things that allow them to, you know, incrementally adopt more, uh, correctness oriented practices. And so we're trying to build some tooling around sort of tracking these tags between specs and implementation, uh, you know, and seeing, okay, you have all these tags in your spec. Are they all laid out in your implementation? Is something missing? And then maybe making it easier to jump back between the two or maybe building tools to show here's what the definition is in the spec. Here's what the code is in the implementation. 
you know, now just inspect them as a human and just, you know, facilitate human review. Another thing we're, we've started looking at, which I think is actually pretty exciting, um, is generating tests. So it might be, you know, generating implementations, full-blown implementations is a little bit daunting and is maybe a little bit fragile, but um, generating tests is, is maybe, uh, again, more accessible. And you, you can write the implementation the way you want, and then you have this, like, testing interface. And if your, if your spec is written in a way that it really captures what the code should be doing, then you, and you're using a model checker like, like we do with TLA+, um, then you can actually get counterexamples out of the model checker that are like traces, um, you know, of like a, 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 a bad case, a non-optimistic case, something where like, you know, something went wrong, for instance, right? Uh, and so then you, if you can translate that into um, something that can be run actually against the implementation, then you have a much potentially much more efficient way of generating these like pathological cases to test your implementation against, right? And again, it's not, it doesn't mean you have formally verified code in the way that, you know, uh, the code that would run on, say, a spaceship or on certain other, like, critical appliances is going to be, um, you know, uh, generated once and then never touched again, for instance. But it does help build greater confidence that the implementation is actually correct because it's able to correctly execute um, these test cases generated from a model checker. And, you know, model checkers are very, very good at finding the edge cases, right? Because a lot of the, a lot of the protocols we're dealing with you know, especially when you're dealing with like distributed systems and, and concurrency, there's so many interleavings and so many ways the execution could happen that it's really difficult to reason about the edge cases. And often the bugs are in the edge cases. And while they may be rare when they do happen, you know, then you're, you're kind of, you're kind of, you know, uh, struggling to figure out, uh, what went wrong. And so with a model checker, it's a lot easier to actually find those edge cases and find things that maybe you wouldn't have thought about, uh, and get a test for them that you can then run against your, uh, that you can then run against your implementation. So that's a, that's another example of, of something we're doing with the TLA. Now, um, that, that's sort of on the, on the TLA front, but we're also starting to look at what else can we do in the code and start looking at actually, uh, developing techniques to formally verify, uh, the code itself. Uh, and that's, you know, more like static analysis tools, extending the Rust compiler to be able to check sort of more invariants about the code and so on. And you know, that's all still very, uh, exploratory and, and in a research phase, but, you know, what we're, our goal is really to, it, it isn't so much to have like, to be able to put down a stamp and say, this is formally verified code. It's more to make tools, a correctness oriented development processes more accessible. And so whatever we can do incrementally, uh, to make those kind of things available, that's really where our focus is. And, and, and we find TLA to be, you know, a quite accessible specification language. And if we can build out, you know, tools to integrate it with, you know, uh, so you can have model-based testing, that seems accessible, these tags, things like that, that can just help people, you know, give them sort of hooks um, to build up their sort of, you know, correctness processes or, yeah. Is the idea, like, are you really focused on Rust tooling? You mentioned, like, other DeFi protocols, and um, is, is there a vision of, of this, this tooling being accessible to other languages, or are you, you focused on Rust? For sure. I mean, we obviously would like it to be as accessible as possible. I mean, TLA is is a, you know, language independent specification uh, language, right? And so to the extent that we're building TLA specific tools, that's just making TLA as a formal specification language more accessible. And so we've been building a model checker for TLA um, it's called Apalachi. So TLA plus comes with a default model checker called TLC. Uh, but TLC is like an explicit model checker. So it enumerates all the states. And, you know, it, it basically on, you know, systems of larger than a few nodes, uh, it runs out of memory or it runs out of time. And so you can't really do anything 
um, interesting. So, I mean, not that you can't do anything interesting, you know, Amazon's using it in, for systems in production, whatever, but um, you, there's limits on, on how much you can verify. And so, um, and what kind of behaviors, and especially when you're trying to model like Byzantine behavior and, and you know, adversarial activity, you know, the state space explodes with the number of possible things that could happen, right? And so we've been developing Apalachi, which was, you know, in development for years before informal, but uh, is now sort of uh, uh, in-house, uh, which is a symbolic model checker for TLA+. Plus. So it maps uh, the TLA specification into a symbolic representation that can then actually be sent over to Z3, the SMT solver, um, to do, you know, much, much, much more efficient checking of uh, of certain properties. So you can get, you know, for some specs, you can get orders of magnitude speed up. So something that TLC would take hours to do, Apalachi might be able to do in seconds or minutes and certain things that TLC will never, never complete, Apalachi can actually complete. So that's, that's really exciting. And that's accessible to anyone, you know, no matter what programming language you're writing. But for the time being, we're writing our actual code in Rust, we're focused on, uh, you know, currently on the Cosmos ecosystem and building out, um, you know, Tendermint light clients and IBC and, and ultimately a Tendermint full node and doing all that in Rust. And so Given that, you know, we're trying to align our research efforts with our development efforts as much as possible, we're focusing on, you know, uh, verification tools for Rust. But um, we are paying, you know, for instance, a little bit of attention to Go and thinking about ways that we might be able to apply, like, the, the model-based testing work uh, to the Go implementation of Tendermint so we can gain assurance that, that you know, both implementations are sort of correct and, and things like that. But in, in the longer term, obviously, we'd like to expand to, uh, to more languages. But, you know, in the short term, we're focused on Rust because that's where our development work is. So in doing this, let's call it an experiment of more verified software, have you guys had to change the way you think about code? Because it seems like it's a completely different paradigm, especially when you're trying to do this model-based testing on on Rust, on your Rust implementation. Like, what, What's been the biggest change from the way you think about code or have thought about code before versus now? Yeah. Um... So, you know, it's interesting because our, our think, our thought process has been evolving quite a bit on this and, and, you know, we're like rapidly invalidating ideas. And so initially we kind of came to it and we're like, okay, the way this works is first you write your spec and, but actually one spec isn't enough. Uh, you need multiple specs for different layers. So first you write like a high level spec for the protocol. Um, you verify that and then you'll write a lower level spec for what the implementation is going to look like. And then you verify that and then you know, you can more or less just sort of follow the spec and implement the code so it lines up kind of directly. Um, <coughs> we realized that doesn't work. We probably should have known uh, ahead of time that that was sort of naive and optimistic. And what we're realizing is that really the, the specification process and the, you know, the development process really do need to go kind of hand in hand and happen together. And they, they heavily inform each other. And the most valuable things we've learned have been from uh, from feedback between the two where, um, where, you know, the, the specification is ongoing, uh, is evolving as we're doing the development, the development's ongoing as, as we're evolving the specification. Um, and the feedback is really important and thinking about, um, you know, how to make this, the specification and the verification work really accessible to the engineering team, um, so that they can like take away from the, the work that was done in the spec and actually understand what it means for an implementation. Um, and you know, a lot of, a lot of things, um, a lot of, a lot of like understanding of code hasn't really, um, changed that much, to be honest. It's just, uh, you know, it's just a slower going process where you're kind of trying to make sure that you're not just like rushing ahead with the code and that you're sort of involved 
uh, you know, entangled more deeply in, in the in the spec process and the verification process, and that researchers are sort of more involved in looking at the code and making sure that the um, that the design is actually uh, going to make sense from the perspective of the specification, and that it will be testable, um, and that, for instance, you'll be able to write something that uh, you'll be able to actually exercise with the um, with the output, say, from the model based uh, from the model based testing, and so. Um, we've gone back and forth on, on a few things. I don't know that there's anything, uh, any like major takeaway on the code that isn't sort of already, you know, standard, um, you know, good practices for code in terms of how you abstract and how you make sure things are testable and, um, and so on. You guys must have a really special set of developers because like most developers that you work with already hate writing any form of documentation. I can't imagine like, a normal developer coming in and being told that before he implements something, he first has to write a spec three times uh -huh. over. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, you know, the researchers, uh, we have a pretty big team of researchers as well. I mean, we're a full total, but, um, you know, earlier on, uh, we were really focused on, on the research side of things. Um, and so the researchers have been, have been contributing heavily, but we've really been trying to make sure that you know, it's an integrated team. It's not like researchers write a spec and then throw it over a wall to the engineers who are then supposed to implement it. You know, we're really trying to build that, that feedback loop. Um, yeah. Where do you draw the line between what a researcher is and what a developer is? Uh, this is a great question because we're trying to eliminate the line. Uh, we're yeah. trying to, we actually got rid of, you know, our, the, the main title now is like research engineer. Um, and, you know, anyone who's coming on in a research kind of capacity is expected to be involved in the code. Um, but, you know, uh, we, we do, have, you know, a few folks are, who are kind of, you know, who are professors in a past life, I guess, before informal and, and sort of have a, you know, much more experience with like, um, you know, uh, academia and research agendas and really like, you know, formalizing research problems and so on. Uh, you know, they're, I guess, a little bit less involved with the code. Uh, but even still, we're trying to we're trying to keep them, um, you know, tightly integrated and looking at the code and trying to think about how to ensure the correctness of the code. But I guess the you know the distinction is really more about um, at, at like uh, time you're spending kind of formalizing the protocol versus time you're spending trying to implement the thing, right? And so we have been doing a lot of work, really trying to you know we take we take a lot of things for granted is, is what we're realizing, and it's like you know we've been talking about like tenement like clients for years, and it's like oh yeah, it's easy like easy it's the light client it's trivial right like it's so far from trivial when you really try to like actually formalize the model and find out what's going on and how to reason about it and how to reason through it like fully so that you could specify it in you know in tla and get the model checker to really uh to really check everything um it's a it's a lot and so you know the 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 our like principal scientists have played a huge role in actually like formalizing the model that this protocol is supposed to operate in um, and helping everyone sort of understand that model, and then um, you know, so then that that the implementation can move forward. Maybe let's uh, step out like a bit higher level just for a moment. I kind of want to get back into this stuff, but like, how how big is your team right now? Um, and well, like, what is the, the the business model behind it? Yeah. So um, you know, we're we're initially set up as like a you know R and D services company. So you think about us in the same same spirit as Galois or runtime verification or trail of bits and you know certain like security auditing companies or whatever, but folks that are like offering formal verification work as a service. Um, and so you know we're open to uh, you know we're really hoping to help really all the like layer one blockchain companies uh, or projects sort of 
put their specifications on more formal footing um, so they can work with us and we'll help you know formalize the model and, and start writing out TLA plus specifications for it and and verify it um, and so it is at a, at a kind of first order uh, a services company and really what we're trying to figure out uh, a baseline is how to build a sustainable um, kind of research firm um, and you know we're hoping that there's uh, we're anticipating that demand for formal verification and this kind of work is going to grow, especially as more and more uh, blockchains are launching and as more, uh, you know, more of our world depends on distributed systems and, and you know, these open source databases implementing consensus protocols and wanting variations on them. Um, so we're sort of betting on that, uh, on that growing market and on offering the, uh, the spec specification and verification work there. But of course, we're also a development shop. Um, and so we're open to helping, uh, you know, actually implement things. Uh, and so, for instance, you know, our, our current, we're currently engaged by the Interchain Foundation. So we spun out of the Interchain Foundation uh, in January and a big chunk of our team was actually working there before we spun out into informal. Uh, and so we have a, you know, a contract with the Interchain Foundation to do a bunch of this work uh, for Cosmos. So to formally verify um, a lot of the, the protocols and to implement them in Rust. And, and we're certainly open and are starting to talk to some other projects about uh, doing similar work for them and sort of starting small to prove out our capabilities and then growing that work over time. So really for any, you know, any layer one project that has a consensus protocol um, that is kind of new and that, that's pretty much all of them, you can think about, you know, uh, Polkadot, Ethereum 2.0, Near Protocol, Tezos, like, uh, you know, Solana, Celo, like everyone is kind of developing their own consensus protocol. And many of them are actually, you know, they can be seen as variants of Tenement. Um, you know, a lot of people start with Tenement as like an initial kind of simple uh, Byzantine fault tolerant consensus, and then they go from there and expand it whatever direction they want to make it, you know, more efficient or scalable or, or you know, whatever kind of change they're looking for. Um, and I think the most of those are probably insufficiently formalized. And, uh, you know, we would love to help uh, put all those things on a more formal footing and really establish a, you know, clear understanding of what each protocol is and how it works and say how it differs from Tendermint or from others and what properties it satisfies and, and to actually, um, Verify those properties in a in an accessible way. Uh, in the longer term, you know we're we're certainly interested in in um, finding a product niche. And so, for instance, we expect that there's you know there's opportunities around Apalachi, this model checker, and maybe ways to uh, you know to think about some um, you know open core and uh, you know selling services around it or uh, you know cloud hosted versions or whatever. So we're we're exploring. Uh, what potential longer term business models might look like from a product perspective. Um, we're also something I didn't really talk about, but you know, we, we, we state informal mission in terms of verifiability for distributed systems and organizations. So we've been talking a lot about formal verification for distributed systems, but there's this whole other piece here, which is motivated by the same kind of experiences and challenges of running distributed organizations. And in the same way that distributed systems are hard to build and hard to know they're correct and hard to change and hard to verify and all this, all the same stuff applies to your organization. How do you know your, your company is correct? Your books are in good order. Um, you know, your, your finances are good. Your contracts are, are organized, whatever, like, uh, your minute book. All of this is, is very, very challenging. And people end up paying, you know, thousands of, upon thousands of dollars to accountants and lawyers who can't agree with each other on, you know, what the state of the company is or if it's correct. And so we've sort of been looking at that problem as very similar to the problem we're tackling in the distributed system space and thinking about um, tools we can build there for ourselves uh, to make our own, you know, improve the correctness of our own organization. Uh, but that could also potentially be spun out um, into other companies. Um, uh, so you mean like not, not just like DAOs come to mind as sort of like 
there's, there's actual code you can verify that that's like you know codified yeah. organization but it sounds like you're talking about like you actually have an object or a symbol that represents the salesperson or something and that they are you define you specify how they react when some event happens and then you it like actually verify all this computation yeah i mean you can go you know this this thing can get um pretty dystopian pretty fast if you take it all the way <laughs> but uh it, it's not to like you know try to exclude the autonomy of like the individual humans who are participating and the DAOs have really been focused on like you know automatic execution of of like business processes and and i'm honestly a little bit less concerned with the execution than i am about the state itself like what is the actual current state of the corporation and is it correct is it compliant and if you want to make changes how do you track those changes right and i feel like the the business of running businesses has so much to learn from uh, open source development and from all the tools that were developed over the last couple decades to facilitate distributed collaboration on code haven't really been brought to bear on distributed collaboration on a business, right? And that's things like plain text, things like version control, uh, continuous integration, right? All these things that are now second nature to any developer on a GitHub repository that without it, you know, it would be impossible to imagine how we would collaborate on, on that piece of software. Um, none of that stuff has really been applied uh, to businesses in any meaningful way. I mean, everyone's just collaborating on like, you know, G Suite and some other set of proprietary products. And it's a, you know, frankly, I find it like a big disgusting mess. Um, the way everyone's data is kind of siloed and locked up in these proprietary systems. And, you know, there's no, it's not open. There aren't nice APIs. It's hard to digest in other formats and so on. Um, and so I really think what's missing is like a, a sort of Git style approach to, um, to running your businesses with, yeah, like I said, having more of the data in plain text, uh, in, in version control so you can track the changes and with continuous integration so you can like have checks that's like, oh, I wanted to make a change to my company. Did I do it all correctly? Like I, you know, I, I drafted a contract. Is it all correct? Right? Like it could actually verify all the components that, um, you know, based on whatever, the same thing we do with code. So I think there's a huge opportunity to actually manage our businesses the way we manage our software. Uh, and that's something we've been investigating and, and looking at ways. And, you know, our, our, our hypothesis is like, look, if we can figure out how to build uh, more correct software more efficiently and more uh, correct organizations more efficiently, then we can combine those two to build correct software organizations and maybe have, uh, you know, in the longer term, something like an incubator that, you know, spins out uh, companies where a lot of like the overhead is kind of amortized through um, the verification tools and the uh, organization tools. But um, those are those are the dreams. In the short term, we're really focused on on like Cosmos and, you know, the uh, blockchain interoperability and, and the, you know, explosion of opportunity that will result from, say, IBC going live uh, and from having, you know, many proof of stake blockchains online, people actually using them. There's, you know, probably whole new business models we can't even dream of yet that are going to emerge. And so, um, you know, we're still anticipating potentially, you know, pivoting to whatever, uh, whatever emerges over time. But, yeah. So, so I'm curious to, to bring it back more to the, so the term that you use is the way you're doing is verification driven development, right? Like, as opposed to test driven development or sure. yeah, whatever. Uh, for a team out there who is interested in this, um, you know, maybe they're writing a bunch of solidity, uh, kind of worried about that situation. They'd like to do 
I don't, I don't want to limit it to Solidity, but that's kind of like where, where I live is, is mostly thinking about smart contract security. So, sure. uh, you know, what, what would they have to do to move from, hopefully they're doing test-driven development already. Uh, yeah. Maybe they've written it, if they're motivated to, to move to verification, they probably have written good plain English specs. Um, yeah. What do they need to do to think about both, both culturally as well as um, you know, tactically, process-wise, tooling, et cetera? Yeah, so so we've been uh, we've been much less focused on um, you know things like smart contract, which are really sequential uh, sequential programs, right? And there actually is already a rich ecosystem of formal verification tools for things like Solidity, right? So uh, you know the runtime verification folks have this K framework, which is a very nice um, framework for, and you know they they've modeled um, they've specified the EVM completely in K, so you can now you know uh, verify. Um, solidity contracts. Now, I haven't I haven't played with K myself. I know a lot of people engage runtime verification to verify um, their contracts, and so that's something that you know you could you could be trying to do more um, ahead of time. The real the real like you know thing about verification driven development is that verification isn't an afterthought. It's not like first you try to implement your contract as best you can, and then you try to verify it. Right? It's more like the concerns of verification, the need to think how am I going to verify this code is actually you know, part of the architectural discussion, part of how you, how you write the code, how you, how you design things, right? Um, and, you know, test-driven development is very similar in that way. You, you want to architect the code so that you can actually, um, so you can actually write tests. But, you know, test-driven development, like, people are like, okay, first you write the failing test, you know, and then you implement the code until the test passes, right? And a lot of people have, rightly so, you know, problems with that approach. And I think the, the main takeaway from test-driven development isn't that, you know, you have to sort of follow this letter of the law, first you write the failing test kind of scenario, but more that the way you design the code, you ought to consider testing as you go. And if you design and implement, you know, code and it's not testable, you know, then that's a problem. And you can't just like figure out testing after the fact, right? Um, and I think so, you know, the verification driven development is very similar that you sort of, as you're writing the code, you need to be thinking about how it's going to be verified and what kind of things you might do that might make it uh, difficult to verify. You know, and it's a lot of, there's a lot of commonality in terms of like, you know, good practices, you know, like obviously having, you know, more functional code and, you know, less global variables and, um, you know, good clean abstraction and stuff like that is all, is all of that's going to help make it, um, make it more verifiable. But, uh, you know, other things like really limiting the amount of concurrency you have and having like really well justified, um, concurrency that you really need it. You're not just like, you know, for instance, spawning go routines willy nilly just because you can, um, you know, things like this. So. Honestly, more recently, as I was saying, we sort of, you know, initially we were like, well, first you write your specs and then you'll write your code. And, you know, so we, therefore we have this like verification driven development. Recently, we've been thinking about actually flipping the thing and talking about development driven verification. Um, and that's also really interesting because a lot of like verification work, especially in academia and whatever, right? They'll just like, you know, here's my new verification technique and, you know, uh, my new protocol and I'm, you know, going to verify this thing and who cares if you can implement it because I'm just like trying to get a paper submitted about my new verification technique. And so really thinking about, um, you know, flipping that problem on its head and thinking about how do we also do the verification work to maximize its relevance for development. Uh, and, and, you know, so really think taking both of those things, verification driven development and development driven verification and sort of taking them together. Um, is sort of the latest state of our thinking on what that looks like. So a couple of months ago, we published this like very short VDD guide, which was just like a current state of our thoughts on it, where we have these like multiple layers of specification and how, you know, who writes what and how it translates into code. And we sort of realized it was a little bit 
a little bit too much up front and you know we haven't really updated it since but we're learning a lot by trying to apply it uh, as we're writing this rust code and as we're kind of formalizing the the cosmos protocols uh, and then hopefully we'll continue to update that uh, you know later in the year with more of our learnings and uh, yeah so this entire process of I, I feel like a lot of the the major reason why people don't formally verify their code is one it takes a long time and two it's uh it's costly like there aren't tla once you know it you know it but it's not easy to get into and it takes a while there's not that many like it's a completely different paradigm than writing code and you have to learn something completely different has it so i guess the question is has it been valuable for you? Has has your thesis been proven to be right in that you found uh, software bugs which have proven that taking this time and spending these resources on this has been worth it? So uh, partially yes, partially no. So yes, because like forcing ourselves to actually be able to specify something in TLA forces us to really clarify um clarify the, the protocols and to really like, you know, disambiguate things. And that actually, even just the process of the specification uh, has has led us to bugs. So even even not not even verifying it, just just trying to specify the thing has made us uh, realize, oh, actually, there's a bug here, there's a bug there. And that's happened a few times. So from that perspective, the, you know, trying to get the thing into TLA um, has been, I think, very valuable in uh, in uncovering bugs, where where things I guess have been less valuable is where we've sort of um, you know overemphasized on like trying to figure out this VDD process up front and really putting all this effort into like writing a bunch of you know different layers of English specifications and uh, you know sort of trying to turn it into a little bit of a waterfall method. You know that stuff has maybe not borne as much fruit as we thought initially, and that's why we've sort of gone back into. Uh, you know, focusing on, on development and, you know, this like development driven verification stuff. Um, but definitely having these TLA plus specs has, um, has helped uncover a lot. And we're expecting the, the value to compound, especially as we get into the model based testing. Because once you have a spec, not only did it help clarify your thinking and might make it easier, you know, to go and, and, and implement the protocol, um, uh, but you now actually have a model that you can generate tests from. Uh, which might help you find even more bugs, even independent of the verification work, because the verification can't, you know, it's not verifying your code, it's verifying your model. Um, so we still, I don't, I still don't think we have, we have found bugs through verification that we didn't already realize through the specification process as like human thinking about it. So we're, we're kind of keeping like a, a running tally of, you know, human versus model checker. Um, and the humans are, are still doing pretty good, but in all fairness, we're spending a lot more time thinking about it than the model checker is spending running. Um, so there's, there's kind of that, um, but definitely, uh, you know, the TLA is forcing us to really think about, you know, formalizing and disambiguating and that's been really helpful. And I would say it's more accessible than you think. Like, um, it does require a little bit of a change in paradigm because it's not a programming language and you can't think of it like a programming language. It's a, it's a mathematics language. And you, so you're like, uh, you know, you're, you're laying out, um, you know, the set, like, um, you know, in this in logic, essentially, like what the state of the system is or could be rather than like imperatively, you know, how you make changes to to a state. It's more like these are the possible states. Um, and so th that that takes a little bit of 
uh, of a paradigm shift to do, but you know, it's not that hard to actually start using it uh, directly. What is hard is actually doing the model check. So actually specifying the properties that you want to check and actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, adjusting your specification so that it actually can be checked by the existing tools uh, requires like a, a lot of tricks. Um, and that's where, you know, that, that's where we've, we've developed a bunch of specialties and where we expect we can help a lot of other people. Um, but, you know, actually just using TLA itself, uh, I think is very accessible and can bring a lot of value, even independent of the model checking. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it's been really interesting to see that and to see how just trying to write the thing in TLA has uh, really helps clarify uh, the thinking and, and correct and, you know, find some bugs uh, just by thinking through it. Yeah, from my experience of working with TLA is like, um, first you build, or if you build the software before, it looks in some way. And then in, in TLA, you, by thinking about it so much, you learn how to simplify it because you have to build it in this rather constrained, uh, formal language where it needs to essentially be a state machine. Yeah. And so, and so you, you essentially break down your entire, whatever you were building and turn it into a really, really simplified state machine where you can kind of throw away all the shit you don't need and layer stuff on top of it, which I, which I think is super helpful already. But I, I guess one of the reasons why, um, it may have not been so valuable yet is because as you previously mentioned, this bridge between software and your spec may still be too far to actually find bugs. Yeah. I, I feel like once these tools start developing, like your Rust tools, etc., um, that you can directly verify your spec against your code, that that output or that um I don't know, that cost versus um gain ratio becomes far higher than it currently can be. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends what you're going for, right? If you're if you're saying formally verified code or buff, then you know, feel like that isn't going to help you because it's not formally verified, yeah. right? But to the extent yeah. that it helps clarify your thinking about your code, uh, to the extent that it's a communication tool to help other people understand what the code is even implementing in a way that's maybe more uh, that can be more clear than the English, to the extent that it forces you to really simplify what is happening, uh, and that can feed back on your code and result in your code being more maintainable and easy to understand and that you catch you can catch bugs in the protocol sooner by writing in TLA plus like yes it seems expensive to do that work up front but in the long term uh it seems like it's actually going to save people money and time because bugs that would emerge only in production in some weird edge case that you can't replicate uh and that might literally cost you a lot of money and time uh with much less money and time you probably could have you know, specified and found up front with a, with a TLA stack. And so, you know, for instance, that's why TLA has become so critical inside AWS. And, you know, they talk a little bit about this, but they don't, they don't talk too much because it seems like it's actually become, you know, part of their secret sauce for what, you know, how they build reliable systems is that, you know, they actually specify things in TLA plus first and really clarify them. Um, and that, you know, has been a, a huge, you know, and, and AWS is not, uh, you know, they're not going to do things that aren't necessary. Right, like they're operating at, at yeah. scale, and they're incredibly um, cheap. Uh, to put it simply, I guess <laughs> you know they're not they don't seem like lavish big spenders. Um, and so, if they're doing something and they say you know it's critical, it, you know it's not something to to, to scoff at. And uh, yeah, so we're we're seeing more people starting to adopt it and, and gain value from it. 
Uh, and we certainly have been, we've been, we've been pushing the limits of what you can verify with DLA plus and like some of the, you know, this like tenement light client protocol that we're verifying is like, uh, is crazy. It, it cannot be done with TLC. So the existing model checker just will fall over like almost right away. But with Apalachi, we're yeah. really interesting, um, really interesting results out of it. So, um, yeah, we've been very excited by what it's been able to show us. And, and it can give it, you know, when reasoning about some of the protocols, like for instance, you want to know that, um, you know, we're looking at, for instance, now we're looking at, uh, forks in Tenement, right? Like the Tenement protocol is not supposed to fork, but if it does fork, you want to have this property that like you can figure out, you can, the, the protocol is accountable. You can figure out, um, you know, who done it essentially, right? And so that you can punish them and that's, you know, proof of stake slashing, all this stuff, right? Um, and so what you want to know is like, uh, exactly what the full set of possible faults is so that you know that you, you have all faults covered. And so, you know, only these kinds of faults could cause a fork and thus be punished just those, right? And so we've actually managed to, at least for the tenement consensus, to write a complete spec, uh, and an invariant that says if there's a fork, it must have been caused by one of these, um, by one of these behaviors. And then we can, you know, turn that into, into code for actually punishing just those behaviors and any other behavior that might look faulty, you know, we don't have to worry about it because we know from the model that it can't actually cause a, um, cause a fork. Yeah. It's interesting that you uh, mentioned Amazon, uh, because from like every TLA case study that you look into, everyone speaks highly positively about it, but it still ironically seems hard to convince people to actually invest the time to do it. I guess that's just because people are lazy and there's like not a direct um, objective outcome from it. Like yeah. who found who found bugs with TLA? MongoDB, Elasticsearch. Um, I remember reading like countless studies when I was trying to figure out which formal verification language there is to look at for, especially for distributed systems. Is there any other language to formally verify distributed systems? Because Calc isn't really for um, distributed algorithms as much as it is for algorithms in general. The same with Isabel, which is more of a math. So those are so those are proof assistants, right? So yeah. they're, they're sort of a different category of tool where you're actually trying to construct a formal mathematical proof um, of of the protocol that it satisfies by certain properties. And those are very, very meticulous and very difficult to actually, uh, it's not, it's not like writing a spec because there you're actually building a proof, a, a sound mathematical proof where every single step you take needs to be, uh, proven. And you, you don't get, you know, the challenge with those tools is they don't give you enough feedback as you're going. So it's hard to really know why my proof isn't validating. What am I doing wrong? Right. Where TLA is really different is TLA is a, is, uh, it's a language of mathematics. It's a specification language. It is not a proof assistant, right? You don't get the output of, of a TLA or isn't some kind of formal mathematical proof of your protocol, um, that you could, you know, check through all this. It's not, it's a, it's a, you know, a specification of essentially a state machine and, and you know, what changes are possible. And then you can write also temporal logic, uh, you know, TLA stands for temporal logic of action. Um, you can write a temporal logic, uh, statement that you can then model check with an exhaustive model checker that will check for every possible execution of this state machine I've specified, do these properties hold? Um, and that, and then you can specify safety properties and liveness properties and, and sort of, um, and the really nice thing about model checkers is if the property doesn't hold, it gives you a counterexample. So something that you can expect with your eye and understand, oh, 
I missed this thing because this date was was this transition was enabled. It was possible to get into this date, so let me go back to my model and update it to you know to, to account for that case. And it's really good at uncovering the edge cases, right? That's what it. That's what the model checkers are great for, and making sure that then you you update your state, and so you get this like uh, really nice feedback loop between uh, you know running the model checker, inspecting the counter examples, and updating your spec in a way that you don't really get out of the proof assistance now. There are other tools. So there's this tool called Ivy, which is sort of a newer tool. Um, Ivy is really cool because Ivy uh, is sort of trying to bridge the gap between model checker and proof assistant. And so it's sort of like a proof assistant in that you're building up these proofs, but it also uh, it's also a model checker in that you get counterexamples as you go. And so it's really, really effective. You get that nice feedback loop, but you also get these proofs out of it. And the way it's able to do that is is it's, in my understanding, I haven't used it extensively, but um, is that it, uh, it it constrains the logic you can write in. So it's a it's like a subset of first order logic um, that it uses um, that sort of makes everything tractable, um, and it forces you to really think about your specification of your protocols in a different way, and you sort of have to operate a little bit more abstractly and at a higher level. But what you get from that is uh, essentially like a, uh, you know, parameterized version of your protocol. So with Ivy, you can get a proof and, you know, model check it for, you know, consensus protocols with N processes, right? Whereas when you write something in TLA and you try to use the model checker, you have to actually fix N. You have to say N equals four, right? And if you, if you try to say N equals seven, you know, the thing is going to blow up and it's never going to end. With Apalachi, you know, we're starting to get to N equals 10. So that's like a major advancement is like now we can actually model check protocols with 10 nodes. And that's huge. Like, you know, you couldn't really do that in TLC. But the nice thing about Ivy is that it's actually, um, you can do it for, you know, parameterized number of processes, which is really powerful. And again, Ivy is under the hood. It's also using Z3. Everything seems to be using Z3, the SMT solver these days. Um, and so it seems like there's still a big, a, a lot of space for improvement in these kinds of tools and for bridging that gap between, uh, you know, proof assistants and model checkers. And so we've been working with, uh, we've actually been working with Galois. Uh, with Giuliano uh, Agawa, who's been working on, you know, starting to formally specify various consensus protocols in Ivy. Um, and so, you know, so we're working on now actually having the same work being done in Ivy and TLA plus so that we can really compare them. And, and, you know, what you look at, what you get in Ivy is a lot more high level. Um, it can sort of be hard to see really what the low level details are, what the steps are that the protocol is taking. Um, depending on depending on what you're specifying there, but you get like a more powerful kind of solver as a result. Um, and whereas in TLA, you have sort of a more lower level thing. It's, it's, it's a little bit more accessible and easy to work with, um, but you know it's limited in uh, in the size of the system that you can ultimately model check. So there's lots of different trade offs depending on what what tools you're using. And and there's a number of other tools as well. There's other model checkers. There's other um, there's other systems like the K framework, which is more of like a uh, you know, uh, expression rewriting system, um, really for, in my understanding, it's a lot more for like verifying programming languages and, and for, um, you know, compilers and for understanding systems implemented in particular languages rather than a more general kind of specification language, even though it can be used for that. But, um, TLA seems to really have become like a lingua franca, uh, specification language. But I would bet that a lot of the, the, you know, uh, Probably a lot of the reason TLA has struggled to be adopted is because the user interface is still like straight out of the 90s. It's this like Java. Oh God, I hate the TLA thing. Holy TLA toolbox. The fucking yeah, the Java thing. That like you know, it looks like you're back in the 90s, like before you had yeah. and everything. It's like, how am I ever gonna 
not only do I not want to like download this thing, I don't want to run it or look at it. So like, God forbid, um, you know, yeah. it doesn't like play well with directory structure. So lots of issues there. So with Apalachi, we're really starting to focus on usability. Um, you know, we, we are going to have it be integrated with the, you know, able to be integrated with the PLA uh, toolbox, but we're also working on like very practical things like, um, you know, having JSON as a, as a language for, for getting in and out so that you can dump counter examples in a JSON format that's easier to read maybe than this esoteric CLT format. Um, and so that you can actually translate between PLA plus and JSON. So if you want to have your spec, um, in JSON and writing tools really to make TLA plus as a language more accessible and Apalachi as a model checker, uh, easier to use and building out that sort of, um, you know, TLA based verification, uh, platform. So we invite you, you know, if you're, if you've been thinking about TLA and you sort of haven't wanted to deal with the toolbox and you're comfortable with the command line or whatever, take a look at Apalachi, uh, github.com slash informal system slash Apalachi. A symbolic model checker for TLA and look at some of the examples there. And we have been using it on very real world uh, systems like the kind of light client um, and other tenement protocols and we're starting to use it. And it's been, uh, it's been great and it's really been helping us uncover, um, you know, interesting counter examples um, that we're now starting to use for actual testing. The worst thing about TLA toolbox is this bug where when you want to open a file, it's the same thing as creating a file. You just don't name it yet. And then it opens it magically. And it's been like an issue on their GitHub for, I think, three years. And they still don't fix it. And there's like, I use it on my Mac. And there's like the weirdest fucking bugs whenever you try and do something. Like you save it and it's not actually saved. Or like you want to put your config in a certain config file, but you can't import it properly. Yeah. There's a VS Code extension for the TLA toolbox that seems quite promising. I haven't used it yet, though, because I haven't been writing any TLA recently. Cool. Uh, Ivy's the one by, by Microsoft, right? Yeah. So, so recently, I was looking at this um, formal verification language, which looked or like a distributed algorithm verification language that looked quite promising as well, but it was completely abandoned. I don't know why. Um, that one seemed quite interesting. I, I forget the name. I have to look it up again. But but it seemed quite interesting. So I think he used it to verify um, various gossip protocols. Cool. To see if messages actually arrive. I I can send you the name once I find it again. I, it, it's quite interesting that like we've we've gone really far in how we develop distributed systems, but like these base tools just like have not evolved that much. Like yeah. Apalachi that you mentioned, that paper was released. When was that released? Uh, there's been a couple papers over the years about it. But, uh, yeah. but like for it to really gain traction took like quite some time. I feel like you guys having like employed the guy who wrote the paper and actually giving him the time to help fund it is what actually helped push, push it in this space, which is like kind of, Kind of odd considering that the amount of like distributed systems there are versus the amount of like tools there are to actually like verify these things. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it had, it, it had mostly been an academic tool, right? So, you know, there was, yeah. uh, basically we, uh, Igor Konov and Josef Litter, um, who were, who were in Vienna and have been working together for years. Uh, we call them Yogor, uh, Josef and Igor, but, um, so they're, uh, they're like a superhero duo of like distributed system verification. And these guys have been for years now really, really pushing the bar, a few other collaborators, of course, on, 
um, formally verifying Byzantine fault tolerance consensus systems. And they've been sort of building tools for doing that and really like fleshing out uh, abstractions and different ways of thinking about the protocols to make them more verifiable. And really, you know, the main, the main insight was really that, you know, we struggle with verification because we're always trying to like come up with verification tools in like this most general case, right? But you can actually, yeah. by informing the verification by the domain, you can actually make a lot more progress, right? So when you're thinking about verification as like a, a problem in general, like how do I formally verify arbitrary protocols? You know, it's like, it's intractable essentially. But when you, when you sort of constrain the kinds of protocols you're thinking about and you can inform the actual verification techniques by, you know, actions in the domain and, and a, you know, an understanding of the domain, you can make a lot more progress. And, and so Yosef had a lot of, you know, he, he was a, basically an expert in distributed systems and fault tolerance and Igor was more from the verification side and they sort of came together, um, to really make sure, get the verification to be informed by the distri- distributed systems knowledge. Uh, and out of that, they've developed, uh, you know, uh, a lot of really interesting techniques for formally verifying uh, Byzantine fault tolerance systems that have resulted in a few tools, one being Apalachi, which is, uh, you know, Apalachi is more just a symbolic model checker for TLA+, but we're actually really using it for Byzantine fault tolerance protocols, which has been awesome. Uh, but they also have um, the Byzantine model checker, which is a, a separate um a separate tool for, you know, representing uh, Byzantine fault tolerant protocols as like threshold automata uh, and then model checking those. Um, and, and that's also been, uh, you know, starting to see some adoption. But, uh, you know, those are really, ac- they, they were really academic tools. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, informal spun out and, and we hired Igor and, uh, you know, uh, someone else to really work uh, full time on Apalachi that was just trying to bring it to uh, an actual industrial tool that people can, use and, and, and start to rely on and that we're starting to rely on internally and uh, and that's been great and it's already you know the fact that we're already starting to use it to generate tests for real implementation um, I think has us all really excited so we'd love your listeners to try it out and give us feedback open issues file bugs um, you know ask for ask for features let us know what you want out of it and if it's working for you um, and hopefully you'll find PLA as accessible uh, as we're making it out to be and uh to deliver value to your organization. So, so what are some other projects you guys are looking at? Like maybe there's stuff beyond crypto or even like other blockchains that are interesting that you guys want to work on. What's, what's some of the other work you're looking at? So, um, I mean, like I mentioned, we were looking a little bit at like, uh, organizational tools. Um, we sort of put that a little bit on the back burner again so that we can just focus in on, on IBC right now. Uh, just making a big push to, you know, Cosmos is going through this major upgrade right now and IBC is expected to launch, you know, sometime in the next few months. And, and so we're trying to, uh, we're trying to really help prepare for that. Um, but we have been sort of looking out there at other distributed systems. There's a lot of open source databases. And like you mentioned, a number of them have had some successes with TLA plus. Um, and so we would, we would love to help those. Um, those projects better specify their, their protocols and understand what guarantees they get out of them. Um, there's also the, the Jepson tool, which has been sort of a industry standard tool, uh, for like black box testing of your distributed system and, uh, you know, flexing like various adversarial network conditions and so on. Uh, and that thing find bu- finds bugs in like everything. So no one is safe from Jepson. Um, so we did, we did some Jepson tests on Tenorment a couple of years ago and actually, um, you know, came out relatively on scap there, you know, they found some really silly issues in like single node, uh, data persistence, but, 
as far as like the consensus itself, um, you know, it, it didn't manage to really violate any of the any of the guarantees there. Um, and so we're thinking about ways that we might be able to sort of combine, uh, you know, TLA models and Jepson tooling and see if there are ways to have more sort of targeted uh, targeted attacks. Jepson is kind of a black box tool. You sort of throw it at it, throw it at your system, and it just sort of randomly tries to do things and, and search for violations. But maybe there are ways for it to be a little bit more targeted and somehow possibly informed by um, by a formal model of the system it's actually testing. And so these are just ideas we've sort of been batting around. We haven't really uh, tried to do anything there. But uh, really, a lot of our focus has been on on IBC and Cosmos right now, and on other blockchain. Uh, other blockchain consensus protocols and, and starting to look at formalizing those. We haven't really uh, broken outside the blockchain space yet, but uh, we're certainly open to that. So um, any anyone who's really you know building a distributed systems protocol and looking for uh, you know to increase their confidence in, in its correctness is is something we're open to uh, to helping with. And even like you know uh, we're looking at putting together some TLA plus workshops and um, you know some some training on how to use the the tools and, and how to verify systems with it and so on. So. Uh, hopefully that stuff will offer, uh, you know, once we get through this IBC push. I'd, I'd personally love to do a PLA workshop or to participate in one, sorry. Sure. So we've just about fit, wrapped up an entire hour. That went by pretty fast. Yeah. Are there any more questions, Marillion, from your side? I mean, nothing that's not going to just extend this by another 20 minutes. So I think I'll, I'll let it rest there. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks, Ethan, for having you on. It was a super interesting conversation. I'm super excited to see what you guys do in the future, and hopefully I'll be able to participate in one of your TLA workshops soon. Awesome. Uh, and where, where can people learn more about you and, and find you online and all your work? We are uh, informal.system is our website. We're on Twitter at informalinc. Uh, and our GitHub, github.com slash informal system. You can check out our Tenement and IBC Rust repositories there, and Apalachi is there. Um, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Thanks so much.